This is They Create Worlds, episode 185, A Very Naughty Dog, part two. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We interrupt our regularly scheduled podcast to bring you a tale from the future into the past. And that is a magical adventure that Alex and I will be going on to in our first public appearance. That's right. We've talked for a while about trying to start going around to con shows, whatever, and take ourselves on the road a little bit. We started talking about that right around February of 2020, and then then we stopped talking about it for some reason. Why why was that, Jeffrey? I I don't recall. <coughs> <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that was bad timing. But now that things are different than they were then, don't want to politicize anything. Now that things are different than they were then, I think that's fair to say. We're looking into taking our show on the road again. Uh, at some point, we'd certainly like to hit some of the big retro cons out there, retro gaming cons. But we're going to start a little closer to my current hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, a place that is uh, near and dear to my own heart, which is Dragon Con. A convention full of dragons. So obviously, it's all about video games, right? Yes, Dragon Con bills itself as the largest multi-genre and pop culture convention. Certainly, there's a lot you can parse there. We're not going to get involved in the competition here. There are a few out there that are larger, like San Diego Comic-Con and, and some of those. But it's big. What kind of sets it apart from some of the others is that it accepts content of all kinds from all types of fandoms and remains by fans for fans. I mean, there's a corporation that runs it, of course, but it's think a not for profit could be uh, false advertising there, but it's just Dragon Con. It's still fan-run. It's not one of these, like, the Wizard World Comic-Cons of the world where it's all very corporate. So it's it's near and dear to my heart for a lot of reasons. I've been going a lot longer than I lived in Atlanta, and it seemed like a good place to get our feet wet. Uh, they do have a video gaming track. It's not the focus of the con. It's certainly uh, one of the smaller tracks, but they put on a good show. They do a good job. They get people, and Seems like a nice, relatively safe space for us to try this act of ours live, and far scarier than that in under an hour, gulp. So yes, you have to hear Alex talk in under 50 minutes all about a guest of ours, the seventh guest, the seventh guest of video games, with all of the wondrous, glorious, excellent use of green screen. That's right. I'm going to have to do it like the Micro Machine Man because we're not going to have enough time. I'm not going to be able to talk in a normal tone of voice. I'm going to have to go fast, 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 talk about the seventh guest, Sillywood, CD-ROM, and all that good stuff. Because if I don't talk this fast, we won't get through the whole thing. And if we don't get through the whole thing, then they'll get mad at us. They'll never invite us back. There won't be time for questions. It'll be a disaster. So you're going to get Alex in hyperactive mode, full speed. <sighs> Or something like that. But yes, it's going to be uh, the seventh guest. We haven't talked about that on the show yet. Now, this isn't going to be a live recording of the show, because obviously we can't do the show in 50 minutes. That's just crazy. <laughs> uh, but uh, we did pick a topic that uh, we haven't really discussed yet on the show itself, which is nice, and which does have a 30th anniversary this year, which is the seventh guest, kind of the vanguard of this full motion video movement that was Sillywood. We talked about Sillywood generally. We did a Sillywood episode. 
but dive specifically into Seventh Guest and how that came about, how it became one of the first killer apps for CD-ROM along with Myst in 1993. Yeah, just uh, kind of have fun uh, interacting with actual people instead of these microphones that we're usually just interacting with. So since they're going to probably throw us in the basement somewhere in some dark corner of doom, <laughs> we are going to need some rescue. So if you're a fan of the episodes and what we do here at They Create Worlds, feel free to come to the convention. If you're already going to the convention for whatever reason and you want to see me, Alex, say hi. I listen to you a lot for some reason. You put me to sleep with your hours of banter. <laughs> we're here to take it. I'll even have the box of magical stickers with me. That's right. We will have stickers. Of course, we'll have no idea till far closer to time when our panel will actually occur. But it is official. They have said we can do this. The Naive Fools. Yeah, should be a lot of fun. If you want to, you can check out Dragon Con and see if you want to come visit us or visit the con. Now we will return you to your regularly scheduled episode sometime in the past. Once again, we have to go and find those naughty dogs as they rampage around the Hollywood Universal Studios, just running amok. Since we're not really going to stay on this lot forever, Alex, we're going to have to find somewhere else to live. So where do we take these naughty dogs from here? Well, eventually, but we're not quite there yet, because as we left off last time, The game Crash Bandicoot was well along in production. We'd gone from Willy the Wombat to Crash the Wombat to Crash the Bandicoot. We've come up with a great way of rendering the world that allows it to have way more detail than other games on the PlayStation at the time. We've come up with a gameplay system revolving around crates that allows there to be a lot of incident in this world, despite the fact that, spoiler alert, there were very few polygons left over for things like enemies and encounters. As we didn't mention last time, we even got ourselves some cool jungle beats from Mark Mothersbaugh himself of Devo fame. So everything's come together on this game. But as we touched on at the very end of the last episode, Jason Rubin and Andy Gavin had bigger ambitions than just creating this kind of cool 3D platform game for Universal Interactive Studios. They saw an opportunity for themselves with Sony just getting into the video game market for the first time and not having a very robust internal development apparatus yet to become a flagship title for the Sony's PlayStation, and perhaps for Crash to be a mascot character for Sony, despite the fact that they're third party, despite the fact that they're being published by Universal, etc. They make a very conscious decision to try to woo Sony over to their side. They're helped in this greatly by Mark Cerny. But wait a second, they already broke Sony's rules. You said Sony really, really hated them not using the API, (laughs) and they signed a blacklisted people. Yet they're coming to them hat in hand going, we have this wonderful game that breaks all your rules, and we want it to be a mascot character. Yeah, so that's true. I think they're really aided in this, though, by their relationship with Mark Cerny at Universal. We kind of touched on last time that Mark Cerny was kind of the lead technical person on the Universal Interactive Studios management team. One of the things that has always been unique about Mark, and which we've talked about in other episodes, particularly our recent Sega Technical Institute episode, is that he lives in both worlds. 
He has spent time in America. He has spent time in Japan. He speaks wonderful Japanese. He has contacts throughout the industry from his days at Atari, from his days at Sega, from his days being everywhere. I think Cerny is probably able to help bridge the gap and smooth things over a little bit. This also does cause a little bit of controversy, though, within the company and with Universal, because one thing that we didn't mention last time, because it really didn't fit into the flow of the narrative yet, is that Crash did have a producer at Universal Interactive Studios, somebody whose job it was on the Universal end to watch over the product. Now, Cerny's keeping an eye on things, but he's technically another level up in the hierarchy. The producer on the game is a veteran producer by the name of David Siller, who has worked in the industry for a while, most notably, not that it's that notable, creating the game Arrow the Acrobat for Sunsoft, which was another one of these ubiquitous mascot platforming style games, just Sunsoft's version of it. There's a lot of controversy about what exactly Siller did on the project. David Siller himself has said that he was behind the conception of much of the game, much of the gameplay, and he has a lot of documents in his possession, planning docs, sketches, etc., that seem to show that, yes, he did a lot of that. The Naughty Dog people very much contest that and very much disagree with that. They say that he contributed very little and that he spent most of his time making it look like he did more than he actually did by, once they had hashed out the game, drawing up all of these documents, drawing up all these planning documents after the fact, still during the production of the game, but after the Naughty Dog team had already created everything, and then taking those to management at Universal and kind of ingratiating himself in a way that made it seem like he was doing more. Those are the two sides. We can't make a judgment on that. I can only say what both sides have reported in interviews. This is all stuff that's on the record. I'm not levying any accusations personally. I am just discussing what's already in the public record, just to be clear on that. Whatever the case with Siller's contributions, this does highlight that there was starting to be a breaking down of the relationship, even at this early stage, between Universal and Naughty Dog. Because Naughty Dog was really interested in courting Sony. They really wanted to be in Sony's camp. You know, they weren't owned by Universal. We talked about this. Universal was just publishing them, but it wasn't a typical independent developer-publisher relationship either because Universal was funding them in a different manner than you fund an individual developer. It wasn't milestone payments based on reaching certain objectives, certain milestones. It was, we're fully funding you, we're giving you space on our lot, and then we're publishing your game, but we don't own you and we're giving you lots of freedom. So it was kind of weird. I think probably the tension between Siller and Naughty Dog, I mean, whatever the case is about who did what and who contributed what, I think that the tension there is very much about Naughty Dog already kind of trying to break away from Universal, even though they're contractually obligated to them at this time, and using Universal as this stepping stone, this funding stepping stone to get the real prize, which is getting in a lead position on the Sony console. So I just wanted to bring all of that up. The other thing that's interesting about courting Sony is the Sony corporate organization is nuts at this time. We haven't really done Sony much. One of these days, we'll probably do a big three-part live stream uh, as we do our yearly live streams on Sony and the rise of the PlayStation. It won't be this year, but sometime in the nebulous future, one of our live streams will definitely focus on that. But there's still so many pieces of the puzzle to gather up that I don't feel confident in doing that yet. So we haven't really talked about 
Sony Computer Entertainment very much, and how it's organized. There's a lot of weirdness involved in this. Because Sony is a consumer electronics company. They're a hardware company. They do stereos. They do the Walkman. They get involved in computers. They're a purely hardware company. But as with many other Japanese companies, including Matsushita, which had bought MCA, owner of Universal, which we talked about last episode, they became very afraid in the late 80s that the future of the business was not in hardware, it was in software. And when I say software, I don't mean computer software. I mean that the future is not selling the person the VCR. The future is selling the person the video cassette that's going to go in the VCR. The future of the business is not the stereo or the Walkman. The future of the business is the album by the famous artist that you're putting in the stereo or the Walkman. So when I'm talking software, I'm talking even more broadly than computer software. So they bought into the movie business. They bought into the music business. They made a joint venture with CBS. They bought Columbia Pictures. They were doing all of these things. The expertise was kind of divided because Sony was entirely a hardware company, so they were looking outside for the software portion. They had begun doing some stuff on CD-ROM and exploring video games, even NES games, SNES games, that kind of thing. But they did it through Sony Music, which was owned by Sony, but it was separate from Sony, because those are the people that had the experience in software rather than hardware. So when they decided to do the PlayStation, and they created Sony Computer Entertainment in Japan... It was actually a joint venture between Sony and Sony Music coming together. Sony has the hardware expertise, Sony Music has the software expertise, but they were mostly housed on the Sony Music side. And the head of the business was a Sony Music executive by the name of Shigeo Moriyama. Ken Kutaragi is driving the creation of the PlayStation through Sony Computer Entertainment, and he is very influential within the hierarchy, but he is not in charge of it at this point. Later on, he will be, but not in the period we're talking about. So that's what's going on in Japan. Meanwhile, the United States, there's something completely different going on, because Sony Music had been doing kind of game stuff or exploring game stuff in Japan. In the United States, they had set up a joint venture with CBS Records, which they had a deal with, by the name of Sony ImageSoft. That was the American arm of things, and then that eventually got rolled up into something that was called Sony Electronic Publishing, headed by a young executive by the name of Olaf Olafsson. In the United States, when they started thinking about this PlayStation thing that was going on in Japan and how they were going to be involved in this, there was a lot of autonomy at Sony USA, which was the American branch of Sony. So this was a completely separate organization. Olafsson and an executive from Japan by the name of Shuji Utsumi established a company underneath Sony Electronic Publishing by the name of Sony Computer Entertainment America in order to explore the PlayStation business. Now, you would think, because this is the way it works everywhere else, you have Nintendo and you have Nintendo of America. Nintendo of America is a subsidiary of Nintendo. You have Sega Enterprises, and you have Sega of America. So Sega of America is a subsidiary of Sega Enterprises. You have Sony Computer Entertainment, and you have Sony Computer Entertainment America. These companies do not intersect on the org chart. 
At not all. at all. Not at this point. Not until 1997. Much later in the in the Sony story when there's reorganization. You know, I, this just makes me think of if the company starts with an S, like Sega and Sony, <laughs> it's going to have a very weird org chart in the beginning eras of its existence. Right? And this almost in some ways makes Sega look tame. Oh, God. Make Sega look tame? That's, that's insane. In some ways. So Sony Computer Entertainment America is not a subsidiary of Sony Computer Entertainment. SCEA answers to Olofsson, it's Sony Electronic Publishing, which is a subsidiary of Sony USA. It has nothing to do with Sony Computer Entertainment in Japan. Then next to it is Sony ImageSoft, which is the software arm. So Sony Computer Entertainment America is only about the PlayStation, about the hardware that is the PlayStation, and about getting third parties interested in developing on the PlayStation. The product development apparatus is Sony ImageSoft. To make matters even more confusing, Sony Computer Entertainment America has a little bit of product development going on, too. Eventually, they merged to form Sony Interactive Studios America. But we're getting a little out into the weeds here already, so we're not going to get too far into the crazy Sony hierarchy. But all of this is necessary to explain, to understand the environment the crash is coming into. Sony Computer Entertainment in Japan is really being driven a lot by Kutaragi, father of the PlayStation, even though he's not in charge of it. He sees the PlayStation as something new and different and radical and breaking away from the conception of the industry as it is today. They see that in a lot of ways. They see that in the business model, the fact that it's going to be CD, the fact that royalty rates are going to be lower, that kind of thing. But they also see it in the type of games they want to push. They don't want to be seen as just following the same pattern as Nintendo and Sega. And that takes a few different forms. One of those is that they are absolutely only going to do 3D games, polygonal games. Even though the PlayStation is capable of pushing sprites, because of course it is, they're not going to let anyone really do sprite-based games, especially in the beginning. As time goes on, you get some more traditional side-scrollers. I mean, there's some Mega Man games, and of course, there's Symphony of the Night, very famously. But in this very beginning period, they're going to reject any concept that isn't 3D. Now, that's fine for Crash, because it's already a polygonal game, so no problems there. But what is a problem is he doesn't really want to have a mascot. He doesn't want to have a cutesy platformer. He wants this to feel like a more mature form of entertainment. He doesn't want cutesy cartoon platformers. He's rebelling against the very idea of there being a mascot of some kind. Meanwhile, you have Sony Computer Entertainment America, which, remember, does not answer to Sony Computer Entertainment, does not answer to Kudaragi. At Sony Computer Entertainment America, there are a lot of video game industry veterans being run by Steve Race, who had been at Atari. There are several other high-level executives who had been at Atari. There's Bernie Stolar, who had been in the coin-op biz for a long time and had been at Tremel's Atari Corp. There's Jim Wims in sales, who had been at Imagic and had been at Worlds of Wonder and was one of the key architects of the initial launch of the Nintendo Entertainment System when he was at Worlds of Wonder. These are video game veterans. In some ways, they want to follow the playbook. They don't want to just be... I mean, they understand that this is something new and exciting, but they also know that there are certain things you do to market a system in America, and one of those things is that you have a mascot character. So they've been trying to come up with some kind of mascot to use in marketing campaigns, and they come up with this thing called Polygon Man. 
and you can look them up. We can put stuff in the show notes, but it's this giant polygonal head. It's meant to be a little more adult and a little less cutesy, and it's meant to emphasize the 3D. It's not quite a cartoon mascot, but they come up with this polygon man thing to try to be the mascot. Sony Computer Entertainment in Japan is outraged and appalled and hates this thing, and they do manage to get it killed, even though they don't have direct control. I mean, there's lots of wrangling between internal divisions here, and, and they managed to get that killed. So SCEA is looking for something mascotty. SCEI, Sony Computer Entertainment Incorporated, in Japan doesn't want anything to do with a mascot. There's an active feud going on between SCEI and SCEA about a lot of things, which will ultimately see Steve Race, the president, resign as president of SCEA because of all of this infighting. And and by the time Naughty Dog's coming in, this is after Race's resignation. This is after the launch of the system. It's 96. But things are still in chaos. A, A caretaker president was appointed out of Sony USA by the name of Marty Homlish who had no idea about the video game industry and whom everyone just kind of considered not up to the role. The vice presidents are basically running things, kind of a triumvirate of Bernie Stolar, head of third-party relations, Jim Wims, head of sales, and Angelo Pisani, legal counsel, and I think also executive vice president, are basically running the show since Homlish doesn't know what he's doing. There's still tension between them and Japan, tension that will ultimately see all of them leave, either be fired or quit, and see Maruyama come over himself and completely remake the American division of Sony Computer Entertainment. It's it's a wild story that's kind of mostly out of scope for what we're talking about today, but it sets the scene for what they're walking into. The main people that they end up dealing with are Bernie Stolar, who is the head of third party, and Kelly Flock a veteran of Electronic Arts, Activision, and Lucasfilm games, who is the head of what becomes Sony or Active Studios America's head of the American development arm. They see this game, and they're just blown away. And yeah, they have questions like, wait, how's that happening? Wait, how's that happening? You did what? You broke which one of our APIs? (laughs) But they're so impressed by it, and they're so desperate for that mascot character kind of leading game, which they've had no success convincing Japan that they need, (laughs) that they're willing to overlook all of that. And they end up signing the product right before E3 1996, just a few weeks before. They decide to make it their lead product in the cycle. Twisted Metal 2, the sequel to the vehicular combat game Twisted Metal, was going to be their big showing at 1996. And instead, Crash becomes their big showing at E3 1996. This further exacerbates the tensions between the Japanese and American branches. Mark Cerny recounted how at E3, I believe it was at E3, that he ended up in an elevator at one point with Kudaragi, and Kudaragi just absolutely ripped him a new one. It's like, you know, we don't want a mascot, we don't need a mascot, we're not Nintendo, this is dumb, blah, blah, blah. He was dead set against it, but he has no control. Even though the PlayStation is his baby, he has no control to influence what the American branch gets to do. But it just goes to show all of this undercurrent going on. Sony Computer Entertainment America is very excited about the whole thing, and they agree to publish it under the Sony name and to really heavily market it. They feel that this is the piece of software that is going to allow them to come directly for Nintendo. 
it's easy to look back in hindsight and kind of miss this because the PlayStation so greatly outsold the Nintendo 64. But at this period of time, the competition in the United States was really going to be Nintendo and Sony. One thing that's easy to forget today is from the release of the Nintendo 64 in September 1996 in America to the middle of 1997. So kind of just over a six-month period, like over a seven- or eight-month period in the United States, the N64 was actually cleaning Sony's clock in the U.S. It never did in Japan. It never really did in a big way in Europe. But in the United States, for that brief period of time, the N64 was really outselling the PlayStation. Now, it never overtook the PlayStation in total sales because, of course, the PlayStation had been on the market for a year already by that point. By the middle of 1997, the lack of titles for the N64, the lack of new releases, turned the tide and it never recovered. And from then on, the PlayStation just completely dominated it. But this was seen as a close matchup, and it was very briefly a close matchup. So the American branch of Sony really thought that Crash Bandicoot was going to give them the competitor they needed against the N64 and its amazing Mario game that by just before E3, people realized was coming and was just uh, blowing open the entire idea of 3D platforming. They decided that they would get competitive. They were working with Chiat Day as their advertising agency. Very famous agency, most notably famous for their, probably in tech circles, for their Macintosh ad, their 1984 Macintosh Super Bowl ad. They decided to take on Nintendo head-on, and how they decided to do it is they wanted to convey in some kind of edgy and interesting way how superior Crash Bandicoot was to anything Nintendo could offer. So they came up with this idea that a fan of the game became so obsessed with how great Crash Bandicoot was that he created his own Crash Bandicoot suit and drove to Nintendo of America headquarters and tried to call out Mario because he's the new big deal, the new big guy in town, and trying to call out Mario, who's too chicken to show up to face him because Crash Bandicoot is so much better. I imagine you remember this commercial, Jeffrey. I certainly do from back in the day. I remember a lot of different versions of it where the guy in the suit just comes around and does all sorts of crazy things. I'll certainly pull up some example videos for people to enjoy from a quick search already. I see one that claims to have all of the Crash Bandicoot commercials in one full long video. But yes, I do recall around this time seeing that funny PlayStation thing and it weird, slightly off-putting character. (laughs) That's right. And this is about the only time that Sony ever engaged in this kind of thing. And and I think that's because afterwards there were wholesale changes. You know, the Japanese were never completely comfortable with this idea of a mascot. And it's not long after this that the Japanese branch takes control. Homlish is removed. Mariyama comes in and assumes direct control of Sony Computer Entertainment America, starts completely reshaping it. And then eventually in 1997, it is brought under the control of Sony Computer Entertainment in Japan, and so this weird dual structure is eliminated. I don't think that's really the direction that the new staff wanted to go after all of that had kind of occurred. This was kind of the one salvo that they had like this, and Crash Bandicoot was front and center, because they really did see it as the mascot character. Crash Bandicoot, you know, it's published by Sony, it has the big advertising campaign, 
It releases in September 1996, so they're literally going head-to-head at this point with the Nintendo 64 and Mario 64, which also release in September 1996. This is kind of the big response there. It's a hit. It's uh, an incredibly successful game. Sells over 1 million units before the end of the year. Really picks up steam over the course of the next year and keeps selling beyond that. It, It really becomes a standard bearer. In the end, it sells almost 7 million copies over the course of several years. It doesn't sell them all at once, but sells about 6.8 million copies over the life of the game and really establishes itself as one of the big standard PlayStation games and launches Naughty Dog into the stratosphere. This was both good and bad. It was good because obviously Naughty Dog is a premier developer now. They have the Sony relationship. Everything's great. The problem is it it became too big too fast. So they had been hoping after Crash Bandicoot, they'd hoped it would be successful. And of course, they were going to do a sequel. That was always in the plan. But they had hoped that they would have about two years, 18 months to two years, to do a sequel to the game. But because it became so successful and because it became such a cornerstone of Sony's strategy, they ended up having to rush right into a sequel because Sony wanted a sequel within a year, not two years. The other thing that went on at the same time is they decided that they really wanted to break into Japan as well with Crash Bandicoot. Generally speaking, Western games did not do well in Japan. As they saw themselves as positioning Crash as a global mascot for Sony, that meant that it needed to be successful in Japan as well. So they actually reworked it for Japan. They made some slight changes to the look of the character, to the animation. They made the game a little easier. The original Crash Bandicoot is notoriously difficult. The one main knock that people have against the first game is how ridiculously hard it is. In general, Japanese consumers did not prefer harder games. So they toned down the difficulty. They commissioned a whole new soundtrack to appeal more to the Japanese sensibility. They released that in Japan, and it became a big hit in Japan. It's one of the very rare at that time American games that actually became a hit in Japan. They end up getting pulled in all of these directions because they're redoing Crash for the Japanese market. They're having to rush right into the sequel, Crash Bandicoot 2, Cortex Strikes Back, which they only have a year to put out. Crash Bandicoot 2 is basically just more of the same. I mean, you refine a little here and there, but there's not a lot they could do. Then, of course, another sequel was demanded the next year after that, uh, the third game, Crash Bandicoot Warped. This time, they were able to add a little more to it. They added some fully 3D roaming areas using vehicles, what Mark Cerny referred to as recess, because you still had your traditional crash levels, and that was like doing the work, and then you would be rewarded by having this more open levels, fully traversable 3D, not just tied to that very narrow axis using vehicles. But the series doesn't really progress that much, just because they have to rush them out. They're crunching all the time. Naughty Dog has throughout its history been notorious for crunch, even more so or on top of some of the other studios that this has plagued. It's really starting to burn things out. The team is growing to handle this increased stress, but there's a lot of pressure and a lot of stressors going on, and this is kind of what sets the stage for the next stage of Naughty Dog. First of all, the thing that they have to do is they have to deal with the universal problem. Universal Interactive Studios was very important to them getting started up, but at this point, they have just become a burden. They have these weird two separate publishing deals because they signed with Universal Interactive Studios as their publisher. And then they reached an agreement with Sony to be the publisher. So basically what this looks like is that 
Sony made the deal essentially with Universal Interactive Studios, even though it's Naughty Dog's game, for the publishing arrangement. So Sony does whatever its normal split is, you know, since we're publishing, you know, we get this much of the profit, you get that much of the profit. That deal was made with Universal Interactive Studios. Then out of Universal Interactive Studios' share, they split off a portion to give to Naughty Dog. But see, Universal hasn't really done anything. I mean, yes, they've provided the studio space. Yes, they provided the funding to get the company up and running. But they're not actually marketing or publishing the game. They're not involved in sales, marketing, distribution, anything. That's all Sony. And they're not involved in development. That's all Naughty Dog. So Naughty Dog is getting a slice of a slice from a company that really isn't doing much at this point. It's really just a landlord that has a very high rental cost. Exactly. This is not a great situation. They want to get out from under that. Now, they have a contract. They have to do three games with Universal. So all of these crash games have to go through Universal. But they definitely don't want to stay after that because as far as they're concerned, Universal hasn't contributed much. They consider the biggest contribution to be Mark Cerny. But by this time, Mark Cerny has left Universal and has gone freelance again and is helping them on the side. So he's not even at Universal anymore. And that's the only asset that they considered a particularly great asset. So they're going to get out of this. Of course, Sony is willing to publish them directly. So, I mean, that's the relationship that they're going to do. But, of course, they have to give lead time. They have to give notice to Universal that this is happening. So it's during the development of the third Crash Bandicoot game that they tell Universal that after Crash 3, we're done. We're not going to be together anymore. According to Gavin and Rubin, at that point, Universal decided to make their lives a living hell for the remainder of their contract. They basically said, okay, I understand. Let's see, you're leaving. That's right. Okay, so I I see we've got some office space here. Well, we kind of need that office space for our partner group. So we're going to need you to vacate those offices. However, our hallways are very nice. So they're kicked out of their offices and they're basically making Crash 3 in the hallways. That's ridiculous. Universal is not paying for air conditioning overnight, which is typical because most of the people in their business aren't working overnight. But these people are crunching all the time. So they're in the hallways working all hours when there's no air conditioning in Southern California. It's an issue. And it's not just an issue because it's uncomfortable. It's an issue because uh, computers are not exactly the biggest fans of heat. Especially older computers. So, yeah, basically at this point, Universal does everything they can to make the remainder of the experience miserable. Or just tank it. Yeah. That's just outright tanking maneuver there. Yeah, but I mean, they get the game done. It gets published. All the Crash games are successes. But the relationship becomes very acrimonious. It is not a happy parting. They finish the game. They find new offices in Santa Monica just because it seemed like a nice place to be by the ocean, good weather, beaches, all of that. They move the company to Santa Monica, and they prepare to work directly with Sony. They have two things kind of going on. First of all, Mario Kart 64 has taken the world by storm, and they were already fans of Mario Kart even before that, the original Mario Kart. So they decide to do a kart racing game. As it develops, they decide that they would like to do it with Crash Bandicoot. Now, One other thing that we need to mention is because Universal was the publisher of the games, Naughty Dog does not own Crash Bandicoot. Universal does. They own the IP. So they have to have Universal's permission to create a game. They've destroyed their relationship with Universal, and Universal's destroyed it with them. I mean, I'm not trying to make this one-sided. I mean, Universal wasn't very adult about this split. (laughs) 
they talk to Sony and Sony serves as the middleman and Sony gets the rights to use Crash in this game. And so they create a game called Crash Team Racing. It's the final Crash game they make, released in 1999 for the PlayStation. But they're also figuring out what they're going to do next. What they're going to do next is be on the PS2 because the PS2 is coming. They know the PS2 is coming because they have a good relationship with Sony. They want to go there, but they can't use Crash. They don't own Crash, and, you know, it's one thing to get that license from Universal for this little spinoff racing game, but there's no way that they can have any long-term licensing relationship with Universal over Crash. So they're moving to a new platform. They have to start over. They cannot do another Crash Bandicoot game. What really excites the team about moving over to the PlayStation 2 is that it is so much more powerful than the PlayStation For the first time, you can actually do large polygonal 3D worlds. This really wasn't possible on the PlayStation. We talked about this. You had polygonal characters. You often had pre-rendered backgrounds. Even when you didn't have pre-rendered backgrounds, you kind of had to keep it to relatively small levels. You didn't have broad open expanses. You didn't even, in general, have much like Mario 64. Mario 64's levels are really comparably small when you think about it. But at the time, for you and I seeing this for the first time, they felt so huge and free because we'd never really seen anything like that before. Obviously, they were super impressed by Mario 64. They knew that the next stage was to get off the rails. You know, the crash solution of limiting the X and Y axes in a way that you're still on a fairly constrained level path, despite the fact that it's in 3D. That was something that was definitely needed on the PlayStation, but they're definitely more interested in doing something big, more like Mario 64 levels, except really, really big, like expansive worlds. Just like back in their Rings of Power days to throw back to the Genesis when they wanted to out Ultima Ultima, they basically want to out Mario 64 Mario 64. They want to have a pretty seamless open world. It's still going to be kind of level-based. It's not exactly what something like a Grand Theft Auto 3 does, where you have this giant world and then you take on missions all over the world. It's still going to sort of be levels, but it's all going to be connected in one space. It's not going to be like Mario 64, where you have the hub, the castle, and then you jump through the paintings, and that gets you to the individual levels. They want to have all of those levels in one giant space. They want to have character and story. They want to be able to insert actual plot and dialogue within this big open world, rather than something like Crash, which had very little story, and what story there was was in between levels. It wasn't when you were actually going through the level. They really want to get more sophisticated in storytelling. They want to get more sophisticated in gameplay, and they want to get more sophisticated in merging the two. That's kind of the basis. On the other hand, they're really inspired, like I said, I mean, there's Mario 64. They're really inspired by Final Fantasy VII. I think that's where a lot of this idea of having a deeper story comes from. They're also just very influenced by science fiction and anime and Disney and kind of all of these things going on. They want something epic. They kind of alight on this idea of having a sidekick character. There are a few influences going on there as well. First of all, just the idea of having a sidekick comes from the idea that this can introduce banter because they're trying to introduce more story into the game world. They're trying to introduce more narrative into the game world and having banter with a sidekick character can help do that. They're also very influenced by Mulan. 
which had just come out, and the character of Mushu, played by Eddie Murphy, the dragon spirit guardian, that is kind of this snarky character providing commentary on what's going on, loyal companion of the main character. That really informs them. In addition to Mario 64, they're also being very informed by the gameplay and kind of the refinements to the open 3D world that have been done by Rare in the Banjo-Kazooie games. And of course, those games also feature a duo with a kind of sidekick relationship with Kazooie to Banjo. So they're mixing this all together. They're including their love of Star Wars to come up with this kind of sci-fi world and the story of an innocent farm boy that's thrust into a hero's journey. You put all of these things together, and, and you, of course, get Jack and Daxter, which is the next big Naughty Dog franchise. Have you ever played any of the Jack and Daxter games? I have not. Neither have I, which is interesting. I never really played these kind of character games on my PlayStation 2. You know, I focused more on role-playing games and, I don't know, Guitar Hero. I mean, I, I didn't really play these kind of games. You know, I didn't play Ratchet and Clank either, which is Insomniac's uh, very similar idea to this. It's a massive 3D platformer with a science fiction vibe, kind of more science fantasy vibe, a very Star Wars vibe. It's Jack and his best friend Daxter, who at the beginning of the game gets transformed into what they call an Otzel and serves as the smart aleck sidekick. It's ironic, in the first game, even though part of the reason they wanted to do this is to create a banter situation, Jack's completely silent in the first game. Now, there's a lot of interplay between the two characters in the later games, but just not in the first game. It's a big 3D platformer. They use some tricks again. Just like in Crash Bandicoot, they were very careful on what was visible on the screen at any time to allow them to have more detail. You know, they tracked down to the second when you could see a rock, and if the rock was not visible on the screen, they didn't draw it, that kind of thing. They do something similar here. It's not quite as open and connected as it feels like, because what they'll do is they had a few places where they would give you a stunning vista, and you could see the whole world before you, but most of the time, your line of sight in individual levels was more constrained, and so they didn't have to draw all that other stuff. They used tricks like that, but basically it's this giant, almost open-world platform game with a sci-fi scheme and, and this buddy relationship between Jack and Daxter. So they're in the middle of developing this game, and there are a couple of other things that are going on over the course of this period. First of all, Sony is very interested in this game. Sony's going to be publishing it, but they really don't want the same situation that happened with Crash which is they chose to make Crash basically a mascot character for their system. They really pushed Crash, and Crash was a system seller, and that's great, but then they didn't own it. Universal owned it, and Universal's going to take it multi-platform, and they spent all of this effort marketing a character in a series that they don't have any control over and can't tie down exclusively to their system. They don't want the same thing to happen. On the Naughty Dog side, Jason and Andy don't want the same thing that happened with Universal, which is that they spend all of their time and energy working on this great IP that they've developed that they then don't end up owning at the end of the day. As we said, Naughty Dog and Sony did all of the work. Naughty Dog on the development side, Sony on the sales, marketing, distribution side, on Crash— and neither company got to reap the full rewards of that. Neither company got to retain any of the rights to that. So this was a suboptimal situation for both sides. Sony basically came to them and said, look, guys, 
We need to have greater guarantees in place. We need to have greater control. We need to know that we're not going to put all sorts of marketing behind this Jack and Daxter game, and then it's going to show up on a Nintendo or a Microsoft system two years from now or something like that. Naughty Dog's like, okay, fine, I get that. Well, why don't we then do something similar to what we did with Universal? Why don't we enter into this kind of hybrid development deal where you own Jack and Daxter, but we still have a lot of independence, blah, blah, blah. Sony's like, that's not going to work for us. Jason and Andy decide, okay, fine. They like to reference a conversation they had with Kelly Flock sometimes before this as well, when they were promoting stuff in Japan, where Kelly Flock was like, you know, you guys have, with the Crash series, the whole trilogy, you have three of the best-selling games on the PlayStation. You have nowhere to go from here but down. They like to tell that story as that being the beginning of them worrying about the future and worrying about whether what they've done is really sustainable. They're having some worries about long-term security. They're having worries about not owning their own IP, and Sony's having worries about putting everything behind something that they don't have full control over. Their anxieties kind of meet in the middle, and everyone decides, and it's, it's mutual, everyone decides that the best thing to do is for Sony to just buy Naughty Dog. So that's what they do in 2001, is they buy Naughty Dog before Jack and Daxter is released. And of course, Naughty Dog is still owned by Sony to this day. It's, I think, fair to say their most prestigious first-party studio. That's kind of why it happened at this exact juncture, is everyone's anxieties getting together and coming up with a mutually beneficial solution. This is one of those situations, you know, developers being bought by publishers, and there have been a lot of awkward stories about this throughout the history of video games. This is one that's worked out. For the Naughty Dog perspective, I'm sure they sometimes think, you know, well, I mean, we sold this many Uncharted's on PlayStation 3. Just think of how many Uncharted's we could have sold if we had sold it on PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. I mean, I'm sure there's times that they think to themselves, boy, it would be nice to have a larger audience. But Sony's done right by them, and they've done right by Sony. It's been a mutually beneficial relationship all of these years, and Naughty Dog is still going strong and is still one of the most prestigious developers in the entire industry. There you go. That kind of worked out. So they get purchased. Jack and Daxter comes out in December of 2001. It's fine. I mean, the Jack and Daxter series is another hit series for Naughty Dog and for Sony. It's not the game changer, though, the Crash Bandicoot was. The first Crash game sold almost 7 million units by the end of its run, and the others also sell many millions of units. The first Jack and Daxter game reaches 4 million units over the its entire lifetime. So a moderate success. A very good success. I mean, it was a successful game. We don't want to sell it short, but it's not revolutionary in the same way. Insomniac, their fellow Universal Studios, studio deal people that they've always had a friendly rivalry with, they're both owned by Sony now. They both started out on the Universal lot together. I mean, Naughty Dog's older than that, but in their PlayStation era, they started out on the uh, Universal lot together. They're both owned by Sony. You know, they have a very friendly kind of rivalry thing going. They're often doing similar things. And it's fair to say that in the PlayStation 2 generation, Ratchet and Clank really kind of stole the limelight from Jack and Daxter. But Jack and Daxter are still very successful. And they did three of them again, plus spinoffs, plus another racing combat game. I mean, it it was an incredibly successful series. Any other developer would have been thrilled to have a success on the level of Jack and Daxter. It's just Jack and Daxter is sandwiched between Crash Bandicoot and Uncharted. So when you're sandwiched between those two massively groundbreaking, amazing series, it just feels like a little less in comparison is all. I can sort of see that. It's sort of like the expectations are too high for whatever they're producing. Exactly. We can certainly see this with other companies that are out there that produce video games. 
I'm sure you and I, Alex, especially back in the 90s and early 2000s, we were of a mindset of, oh, dear God, Blizzard can make nothing bad. Everything (laughs) they make is a hit. Today, on the other hand, there's issues. Right. I don't want to undersell that it did very well. It's just in the context of our narrative, it doesn't quite reach the heights of everything around it. This is also a time when the company is starting to get spread very thin. Crunch is still a constant problem. It's a problem throughout the industry, but it's particularly bad at Naughty Dog. They've been hiring in people, the team's been getting bigger, but Ruben and Gavin are basically killing themselves for this company. They have no life outside of this company. It's all consuming. And at this point, they're in their early 30s. They're veterans going all the way back to the beginning of the 80s. But that's just because they were, you know, child prodigies, essentially. They've been doing this grind. They're, they're in their early 30s now. They're to the point where, yes, this is fun. Yes, we like making games. But also, maybe it's time to have lives now, too. And maybe not kill ourselves. Not like literally, but, uh, you know, just running themselves into the ground kind of thing. At the same time, the teams have been getting bigger and they've been hiring more people. There's, there's more talent. It's getting to the point where they need to elevate some of their more talented employees to reward them for their years of service to the Crash series and the new Jack and Daxter series. But they're a very flat organization, and there's there's really no place to go, because Andy and Jason are basically in charge of everything. They could split into two teams and work on more games at once, instead of this focus that they have now, which is basically working on one game at a time. There's a little bit of overlap, like Crash Team Racing and Jack and Daxter were started at the same time, but Crash Team Racing was seen as kind of this quick spin-off thing, not their main project. So they could split into multiple teams and give some of their employees more responsibility, more control that way. But they don't want to do that. They feel that they work to a very high standard. They're perfectionists. I mean, the Naughty Dog people are perfectionists in every way. They feel like if they split the team, instead of having one great product, they'll have two mediocre products. It won't equal two great products or one great product and one bad product. It'll just be two mediocre products. So they don't want to split the team. But they need to reward their employees, and they're also killing themselves with this grind and want to have a life. So in 2002, during the development of Jack and Daxter 2, of course, there's going to be a sequel, they go to Sony and they say, look, guys, we're done. It's been a great run. We've had a great time doing this, but we need to do other things in our life. We've built a great team. Our team is ready, willing, and able to step up and keep things going. We're done. Our contract with you from when they were purchased runs through 2004. We're going to honor that contract. We're going to be here through 2004. But what we're going to do is we're going to each pick a successor. You know, Jason Rubin's kind of the design guru, the artist, the public face of the company. Andy Gavin is the programming genius. And they're co-presidents of the company. So he's like, we're each going to pick a successor from within the company. We're going to spend the next two years training them up. We're going to give them more and more responsibility over the course of this time, and we're basically going to transition from us to them so that by the time we leave in 2004, you're not even going to notice that we're gone. So that's what they do. Andy Gavin chooses as his protege a programmer by the name of Stephen White, who is almost as great a genius programmer as he is. 
He was hired on during the making of Crash Bandicoot 2 and has been contributing a lot on the programming side over the last few years. Jason Rubin, as his guy, chooses an individual by the name of Evan Wells. White, it ends up, doesn't stay very long. You know, in 2004, Gavin and Rubin leave and Wells and White become co-presidents of the company. White ends up deciding he doesn't like management. So he leaves very soon afterwards to be replaced by another programmer by the name of Christoph Ballera, who kind of stays in the background of things. But Wells, who is still with the company today, is very important. And so we have to take a moment to discuss Evan Wells, who has, as much as anyone, shaped the Naughty Dog experience over the last 20 years. Evan Wells never saw himself getting into the video game industry. He's of the kind of Atari generation, the golden age of coin-operated video games in the Atari generation, just a little older than us. This was a period of time when there was no such thing as, as a video game career. People didn't think of that. He was a big gamer as a kid. He went around to the arcades and... He got an NES and, you know, was really big on Mario and and all the NES stuff. He was a big gamer, but he never saw that as something that, you know, could be a career. He did also get into computers. He liked working with computers. He ended up going to Stanford University, very fine university, and, and majoring in computer science. He was also an athlete. He was a gymnast. So he was also on the Stanford gymnastics team. While he was in college was when the Sega Genesis was getting really big. He was in college in the early 90s. You know, he and his friends would play all of the latest games. One game that he played was Toe Jam and Earl, which was the kind of quirky roguelike created by veteran game developers Greg Johnson and Mark Forsanger. So they play the game, they beat the game, the credits are rolling at the end of the game, and he sees that name Mark Forsanger, and he's like, that's an odd name. One of my fellow gymnasts on the Stanford gymnastics team is named Chris Forsanger. I wonder if they're related. So he talks to Chris and he's like, hey, you know, I was playing this game. You know, do you have like a brother named Mark? And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 sure. He makes video games. It's like, can you introduce me? It's like, yeah, yeah, sure. I can introduce you. So he's introduced to Johnson and Vorsanger, who are basically, they're a two-man development team, JVP, Johnson Vorsanger Productions. They worked with a couple of outside people, you know, like to do the music or whatever, but it's basically a two-man team creating games. So he goes and meets with them, and he's like, hey, you know, could I, like, work with you over the summer while I'm working on my CS degree? And they're like, yeah, sure, sure. So he spent a summer working with them on the sequel to Toe Jam and Earl, Panic on Funkatron, as a tester. Right next door to Johnson and Vorsanger is the company Toys for Bob run by Fred Ford and Paul Ritchie, most known for the Star Control series and, uh, more recently, Skylanders, still in existence today as a subsidiary of Activision. All of these people know each other. They go way back. They have a lot of electronic arts connections. It's not their story, but basically it's no coincidence that they're right next door to each other because they're, they're buddies, they're friends, they know each other. So he starts to get to know the people at Toys for Bob. Toys for Bob at this time is doing an FMV game called The Horde on the 3DO system for Crystal Dynamics. We talked briefly about Crystal Dynamics last time as one of the suitors for Naughty Dog when they were creating their fighting game, Way of the Warrior, for the 3DO, a company that had been specifically set up to work on the 3DO system. So Toys for Bob is contracting with them on this game, The Horde, 
So he gets to know people at Crystal Dynamics because there are producers and whatnot from Crystal Dynamics coming to the office. Crystal Dynamics is located someplace else in town, but they're coming over all the time to talk to Toys for Bob people. So he gets to know them and he strikes up a relationship with them and he ends up landing his next year a summer gig working for Crystal Dynamics on the game Gex. They're kind of mascot platform game, because everyone had to have a mascot platforming game back in those days, and becomes a level designer on the Gex game as a summer internship. They tried to get the game done by the time the summer was over, so he could go back and finish his degree. They don't get it done. So he kind of stays on at this internship while just barely squeaking by at Stanford. It helps the Crystal Dynamics is literally right across the street from the Stanford campus. So he's able to do a sneaker commute, but he spends his last year of college, 94-95 school year, mostly working on Gex, sort of attending classes, and occasionally sort of pretending sometimes to be a gymnast still as well. Squeaks by, graduates, has a permanent job waiting for him at Crystal Dynamics once he does. Crystal Dynamics also has this kind of weird relationship with Naughty Dog. Even though Naughty Dog is down south, first in Hollywood, then in Santa Monica, Mark Cerny is working with Crystal Dynamics. So there's connections between the Naughty Dog people and the Crystal Dynamics people, and there starts to be a kind of steady drip, drip, drip of people from Crystal Dynamics coming to Naughty Dog. Because Crystal Dynamics, it's interesting, in this time period, they took a lot of chances on a lot of really green people that didn't have a lot of experience. They brought together this kind of diverse group of young talent, and then after they'd had some time there and kind of got their feet wet in the industry, a lot of them ended up going to Naughty Dog, which kind of had this prestige thing going on after Crash Bandicoot, and kind of drifting down there. So Stephen White, the programmer I mentioned that was briefly co-president of Naughty Dog, he went down to Naughty Dog from Crystal Dynamics. Evan Wells was still hanging out some with his buddies from Crystal Dynamics, even after they went to Naughty Dog, and he was getting kind of impressed. He was kind of getting sick of the Gex games. I mean, he worked on more than just the first one, but he didn't really want to do another Gex game. So he ends up being like, hey, you know, can you put in a good word for me so I can get a job down at Naughty Dog? Like, sure, yeah. So Evan Wells joins Naughty Dog and works on the third Crash Bandicoot game, then on Crash Team Racing and on Jack and Daxter. So he's a designer. He has a CS degree, so he also has some technical background, which is helpful. But he's a designer and an artist and is a pretty good public-facing guy. So he's, he's like a, a Jason Rubin mini-me in a way. And so he becomes Jason Rubin's protege to take over as co-president of the company in 2004. Meanwhile, Evan Wells is also taking on more of a leading development role on the Jack series. He's the lead designer of Jack 2 which is still directed by Jason Rubin. By the time Jack 3 is coming around, which is getting to be near the end of this transition period when Rubin is going to be leaving the company, it's expected that he's going to take on a broader design and directing role on Jack 3 as part of stepping in to Jason Rubin's role. This is just getting to be way too much. It's too much for one person to take on. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm learning how to run the company. I'm doing design work on Jack 3. I can't also be taking on like overall supervision of Jack 3 as well. I need help on this. So he brings in another individual from Crystal Dynamics that he knew from the company and trusted to help out to be the co-director with Jason Rubin on Jack 3. That person is, of course, the celebrated female game designer, Amy Hennig. 
Amy Hennig is an interesting individual because she's a woman in a man's world. There are very few designers, directors, creative directors within the video game industry that are women. She also came to it a little late. She's actually a little older than a lot of the developers that were kind of getting started in this 1990s period. Amy Hennig was born in 1964. Most of these people that are really getting involved in game design in the 90s and whatnot, they were born in the 70s. She was born in the 60s, which doesn't make her ancient or anything at this period of time, but her roots are a little different than a lot of these others. She was an arcade rat as a kid, but the game that first hooked her on arcade games was Midway's game Seawolf, the submarine target shooting game from Dave Nutting Associates, manufactured by Midway, that came out in 1976 and was one of the most popular games of the 1970s pre-Space Invaders boom. Then in 1977, in what she calls her kind of critical year, her family got an Atari VCS which she became fanatically devoted to the games on there. Star Wars came out, which just blew her away and and blew away what was possible in science fiction, science fantasy, creative entertainment. And she was introduced to Dungeons & Dragons. Quite the combination of things to be introduced to at that age. Exactly. Let's see, that age would be like 13 years old, because she was born in in 64. So 12, 13 years old, because she was born in August. Star Wars came out a couple of months before that. So kind of age 12 to 13 is when all of these things hit. That ended up setting her destiny, but again, in a roundabout way, because you, you didn't just join the video game industry back in these days. She was very interested in storytelling. Uh, you know, D&D's putting her in that direction. Star Wars is putting her in that direction. She goes to college, the University of California, Berkeley, and gets a degree in English literature storytelling, writing, you know, perfecting those kind of chops. And then she goes on from there to film school at San Francisco State University. Her idea is to become a a screenwriter, a filmmaker, whatever. That's the path that she's on. But it just so happens that while she's pursuing that degree as a way to make some money, she ends up becoming a freelance artist on a game for the Atari, on a game called Electrocop. There was a Lynx version released, but I believe the version that she was working on was an unreleased version that never came out for like the 7800 or something like that. So she didn't work on the released Electrocop game. There's no point in putting that one in the show. I mean, you could put it in the show notes, but it's not actually the game that she worked on. They were working on a a console version of it, which never came out, but she signed on as an artist. Even though that game never came out and, and nothing ever came from that specific job necessarily, it was life-changing because it pushed her towards the video game industry instead. She decided she didn't want to be a filmmaker. She wanted to be a game designer. So she ends up joining Electronic Arts as an artist around 1991-ish, I think, is when she joined the company. She worked on The Bard's Tale 4 for a while, which never came out. It was canceled. Then she did a little bit of art on Desert Strike, The uh, classic Sega Genesis game came out on other platforms as well, but Genesis was the lead platform. Just a little bit of art near the end of the project. She wasn't heavily involved. Then kind of her first major project was as the lead artist on the platform game Michael Jordan, Chaos in the Windy City. Kind of a weird thing. You know, EA had the big EA sports brand going. They had all these sports celebrities in their stable. And so they decided to kind of branch out and use some of these sports stars in non-traditional ways, like in other video game genres. And so they decided to make a platform game starring Michael Jordan. 
The lead developer of the game, Michael Kosaka, tapped her to be the lead artist of the game. And then partway through, Kosaka decided to leave Electronic Arts, and he anointed Hennig as his successor. So she ended up becoming the lead designer on Michael Jordan Chaos in the Windy City, which was her kind of first big design role. Game came out in 1994, and then her entire group was thrust into the world of coin-operated entertainment. Because there was this very brief period of time when the arcades were on the rise again, and there were big hits coming out like the Mortal Kombats and the NBA Jams of the world, that some of the console publishers thought that they needed to be more in tune with the coin-op industry to kind of figure out the synergies and where some of the next big hits will come from on console. So both Acclaim and Electronic Arts in this period established coin-operated games divisions. Both companies ended up regretting it and closing those divisions very quickly, but it was, it was this weird little time. So Electronic Arts very, very briefly had a coin-op division. Not many people know about that, which I think they did release a Madden arcade game, and that was about it. They were closed pretty quickly. But because they were closed, it meant that the people that were involved in that, there really wasn't a place for them in Electronic Arts anymore. So Amy Hennig ends up leaving the company with the closure of the coin-operated games division, and she falls in with the Crystal Dynamics crowd. The main games that she worked on there were the Legacy of Kane series, which were decently successful franchise. Then as they were wrapping up the final Legacy of Kane game, Crystal Dynamics, which by this point had been bought by IDOS, was preparing to take over the Tomb Raider franchise. Tomb Raider had kind of been in a state of steady decline for several years. Like, obviously, the first Tomb Raider was a massive hit. We talked about IDOS. We did an IDOS episode. Laura Croft had become an icon, but the series had seen diminishing returns, diminishing quality, diminishing sales ever since. So because the series was falling apart, IDOS decided to take it away from Core Design, the studio that created Tomb Raider, and give it to Crystal Dynamics instead. Hennig really wanted to work on that Tomb Raider game. Loved Indiana Jones. She loved adventure stuff. You know, she loves all of that stuff. At the same time, Evan Wells is coming calling and being like, hey, I need someone I can trust to take over this Jack and Daxter 3 game. This would have been a very hard decision if she had been actually given the Tomb Raider game, but for whatever reason, Idos and Crystal Dynamics decided to go in a different direction and told her that she wouldn't be doing the Tomb Raider game. So she was like, well, that makes this easy. So she left Crystal Dynamics and became the latest, and there, there are several others. I didn't even mention everyone that did this shuttle. There was a joke for a while going on that Naughty Dog was Crystal South, because Crystal Dynamics was in Silicon Valley and Naughty Dog's in Santa Monica, but there were so many people coming from Crystal Dynamics to work at Naughty Dog that they kind of jokingly called themselves Crystal South. So Hennig joined this exodus and became the director, co-director of Jack 3. Just as Crash Bandicoot was a trilogy, Jack and Daxter was a trilogy, as it turns out. There were spinoffs, and there have been other games since, but, you know, the main games at this time were three games. Now, just as we're moving from the PlayStation to the PlayStation 2, we're moving from the PlayStation 2 to the PlayStation 3. Again, because they're a Sony studio, they know this is coming very early. So three years before the PlayStation 3 comes out in 2006, so even before Jack 3 is released, because Jack 3 is released in 2004, on around 2003, they know that the next thing they'll be doing after Jack 3 is they're going to be moving on to the PS3. Once again, just as when they did this transition from PlayStation 1 to PlayStation 2, they knew that they had to up their game. They knew they had to be bigger. They knew they had to focus even more on story. 
They never quite accomplished everything with Jack and Daxter that they wanted to do, but kind of the goal was big world, big story, big heart, lots of interesting stuff going on. And they were able to do some of that in Jack and Daxter, but they weren't able to completely realize that. But now the PS3 is coming, and the PS3 has even more power, of course, than the PS2 does. They decide that this is when they can really take this to the next level. They really want to create seamless game experiences where you're mostly in the game. You know, they try not to have too many cutscenes, try not to have too many places where you're not directly controlling the action and moving through the game. They really want to move you through dynamic levels, dynamic action spaces. They just want to up their game on all of this. It's stuff that they always wanted to do in Jack and Daxter, and they were partially successful on, but they couldn't completely do because even though the PlayStation 2 is powerful, it's not that powerful. The other thing that they really wanted to do is they realized that the PlayStation 3 was going to be the first time where you could actually truly approach real humans that looked and moved in a somewhat realistic way. Jack and Daxter was very anime. It was very anime and Disney inspired because they knew at that time that you really still couldn't do photorealism well. Are there PlayStation 2 games that try to emulate real people? Absolutely, they are. Do they still look very not real people? Absolutely, they do. My favorite example of this is, it's not the only example, but it's just my favorite, is Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, where they're doing all of this street life gangster stuff, and so the characters are giving themselves the middle finger a lot, but they didn't have models where you could control the individual digits on the hand. So when they gave each other the finger in the game, they just put their whole hand up. Not because they're censoring it, because there's plenty of bad language and stuff in that game, but because they literally could not animate them to give a middle finger. Always a problem there, or at least a key issue if you can't actually do the offending gesture. Exactly. They made a very conscious decision with Jack and Daxter to keep it very anime, very Disney, very cartoony. But they feel like now they can actually do something realistic, and so they want to do motion capture this time. They want to take real people, capture their real animations, their real facial expressions, and not do traditional hand-drawn animation anymore. They're going to up the realism. As everyone starts kind of figuring out what they want to do next, Amy, who's going to be the director of this game, and Evan, who's still going to be a big part of it, the artists, the designers, some of whom we'll talk about later, but won't introduce them now for simplicity's sake. As they all start coming together and figuring out what they want to do on this game, they decide they want it to be a little more grounded because it's going to be real people. They still at first have a little bit of a sci-fi element in mind for this thing. So they decide they're going to go post-apocalyptic, because it's kind of in vogue in this period of time. They don't want to do like the Fallout-style post-apocalyptic, where everything's just an irradiated wasteland or whatever. They want to do something that's more pastoral. Very similar, actually, and this is not where the inspiration came from, but very similar to The Last of Us, really where you have civilization, but like everything has been grown over, it's become green, nature is reclaiming the land, wildlife wandering around the streets. This kind of post-apocalyptic. Similar to The Last of Us, but not with the Cordyceps zombies. Inspired by things like Indiana Jones, they decide that they want to do a treasure hunter. But the twist on this is that unlike an Indiana Jones character who is operating in a present— I say a present, because obviously in the 1980s, he's operating in the 1930s, which is not the present, but operating in a known period of time, a present. 
than finding artifacts from our distant past. They thought it would be kind of fun to have a treasure hunter in this future post-apocalyptic world where the treasure hunter is hunting for artifacts from our time right now, right now in that period of time being the early 2000s. So they kind of develop this character and decide that with all of the changes they're making and with all the ways that they're refining their approach, that it would be kind of too weird to go with the post-apocalyptic thing on top of all the other stuff they're doing. So they decide to make it contemporary instead. So it's set in the present, but they keep the treasure hunter idea. I'm sure they were partially in a way, they may have been subtly inspired by the fact that Hennig had been hoping to reboot the Tomb Raider franchise at Crystal Dynamics, but you know it's still something very different from Tomb Raider. Because the character they're looking at is way more inspired by Indiana Jones. You know, Laura Croft is perfect. She's James Bond as a female treasure hunter. The more modern games in the series, of course, take a different approach to that. But at this period of time, she's perfect. She's got the posh accent. She's always poised. She always does the right thing. She always knows what she's doing. She's sexy and she's gorgeous and everything's perfect. They wanted a messier character more like Indiana Jones, somebody who can be abrasive sometimes, who things don't always come easy for them, who sweats, that kind of thing. So, of course, they come up with this character of Nathan Drake. The game that they do with Drake, Uncharted, it comes together in a bit of a messy way. They know they want to create something that does a better job of melding gameplay and story and character. They want to try to make it a little more character-driven. They want to try to emulate the kinds of action set pieces you see in movies, and they want to try to keep you in the game as much as possible and reduce the cutscenes and that kind of thing. I mean, the game still has plenty of cutscenes, but that's kind of the aspiration they're going for. And of course, they want it all to be photorealistic and mo-capped. Which causes a great schism in the company. There are a lot of animators that leave the company because they're not willing to move away from the traditional style. They kind of have this going, they're kind of getting it together, but they don't really have a solid feel for what the gameplay should really be. And it's actually only like six or seven months before the game comes out at this three-year development cycle that they finally figured out, because it was more like Tomb Raider in the combat where you're just kind of running around and you have lock-on aiming. I mean, Tomb Raider has auto-aiming, but you had lock-on aiming, presumably similar to something like Grand Theft Auto 3, where you could lock on to individual targets, and you're just kind of running around shooting. And that just didn't seem to capture what they wanted to do very well. During this period of time, Gears of War has come out. Of course, Gears of War is the game that truly mainstreams the idea of cover-based shooting. Not the game that invented it, I'm not claiming that, but it mainstreamed it. The idea that you move to a piece of cover, you press a button or whatever to attach to that cover, and then you peek out from cover to try to shoot things. They were playing a lot of multiplayer Gears of War, and they were also familiar with the game Kill Switch, which is the game that inspired Gears of War's cover system in the first place. So with these influences, they moved it to a cover-based system of shooting, and that kind of finally brought the whole thing together. They created this Indiana Jones cinematic experience with this interesting new protagonist, Nathan Drake. 
released it in 2007 as Uncharted, Drake's Fortune. As I look at some of the gameplay here, I can't help but notice that as he's shooting the bad guys, he is dodging in and out of boxes. Lots and lots of boxes. <laughs> I mean, they make convenient cover. I don't think it's a deliberate crash callback, but, uh, you know, boxes are always a convenient piece of cover that has a relatively low polygon count. So I wouldn't be surprised if those kind of considerations are the same things uh, moving them. Uncharted, it's released in 2007, and it's a massive hit. It sells several million copies. By 2009, it had sold 2.6 million copies. In its lifetime, it sold at least 4.8 million copies. We never have exact figures for anything, but those are some of the figures reported out there. So this thing was a big hit, but it wasn't perfect. They didn't really achieve everything they had wanted to achieve with it. A lot of the game ended up being very generic set pieces, just like anything else. It really didn't have that feel of dynamism that they were trying to capture from an Indiana Jones type of adventure movie. They had sections where you're shooting at things. They had sections where you're climbing things. But these were very separate sections. It's like you do some climbing stuff where you're just climbing around walls and stuff. And then you do some shooting stuff, climbing stuff, shooting stuff, cutscene here, cutscene there. There were moments that captured some of this dynamism. But a lot of it ended up being just a slightly more polished version of action games that have been going on forever. You know, a slightly more polished Resident Evil 4, let's say. Not that it's a horror game, but, you know, similar kind of an action game breaking its segments into chunks and whatnot. And that's fine. I mean, Resident Evil 4 is a great game. Uncharted Drake's Fortune is a great game. But that wasn't really what they were trying to do, or it was only part way towards what they were trying to do. The other thing that kind of drove them, and several members of the team have said this, is the game was nominated for a bunch of awards at the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, which is basically the Oscars of the video game industry. They lost every single one of them. 2007 was a crazy year for video games. It's the year Uncharted came out. It's the year the first Mass Effect game came out. It's the year Bioshock came out. There are just a lot of ridiculously accomplished games that came out in 2007. So they lost all the awards they were nominated for, and they kind of resolved. It's like, no, we can't let this happen again. So they set out to improve themselves in every way. It turned out that kind of having just one director, it was kind of too much of a load, which is not anything against Amy Hennig. Amy Hennig did a great job, but she's managing the creative side of the game and she's also directing the whole game, so having to deal with the gameplay and, and all of that, too. And it, it's just it's a lot for one person. So they decided for the second game in the series, they decided that they would have a co-director on the game. Amy Hennig would focus on the creative side, the story, and all of that kind of stuff. The gameplay and design, game design side of the game would be handled by one of the principal artists on the first Uncharted game a gentleman by the name of Bruce Straley. Bruce Straley is another one of these misfits, another one of these people that Naughty Dog just can't seem to help to collect from Crystal Dynamics. Straley was a completely aimless youth. He had played games in arcades as a younger child growing up in Tampa, Florida. But by the time he was a teenager, he had gotten away from that, and he had gone full goth, and he liked skateboarding. He was just basically wasting his life away. He had no direction. He had no plans to go to college. But his mom forced him 
to continue his education somewhere because he had a brother and a sister that had both like dropped out. I think mom wanted one of her kids to do something. (laughs) And of course, you know, in that period of time, certainly doing something meant, you know, going to college. One talent that he did have is he was really good at drawing. So he enrolled at the Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale. It no longer exists, but I believe that was the one he was enrolled in. He was getting a degree in essentially to become an advertising artist. This was just in the period of time when desktop publishing was kind of becoming a big thing. And so they did get some instruction in computer art and working with deluxe paint and stuff like that in order to do this art. So he kind of got interested in this whole computer art thing and decided that that would kind of be where his focus was, creating advertising art on computers. So when he graduated, he decided to move out to Los Angeles. He didn't want to stay in Florida and decided to try to get a job in the advertising industry out there, and he had absolutely no success. He ended up working at Walmart. He was looking for all sorts of odd jobs. He couldn't get any work as an artist. And then one day in the newspaper, he saw an ad, Video Game Artist Wanted. Again, just like these other people, he'd never considered video games as a career, but there was an ad, and he needed a job. He was working at Walmart. Not the greatest. He wanted to be an artist, and so this was perfect. The ad was actually placed by a company called Western Technologies founded by a fellow by the name of Jay Smith, who had been a toy designer and inventor with Mattel, and then it moved on into electronic games during the late 70s, early 80s. He created a handheld console called the Microvision. He created a vector-based console called the Vectrex. They also did some handheld and calculator and watch-style electronic games. Yeah, they were just kind of involved in these electronic toy things. And when the video game industry revived again, They decided to get back in as a creator of Sega Genesis games, and so that's why they had this ad. He went there, he got the job, he worked for a while on a game that was never released called Robosaurus, then he worked on an X-Men game that was released on the Sega Genesis. After that, he and some of his fellow co-workers there decided to go out on their own in 1993 and found their own company called Pacific Softscape. They created one game called Generations Lost which was kind of X-Men without the X-Men in a way, kind of building on the work they had done on the X-Men game for Western Technologies. There were some personality clashes. The company kind of fell apart. He decided to leave. He went traveling for a while, was kind of aimless again, ended up back in the Bay Area after traveling to Europe, then ended up in a friend of a friend of a friend kind of situation who knew someone that worked at Crystal Dynamics. So he got a job as an artist there. Worked on some of the Gex games, just like Evan Wells did became friends with Evan Wells and other people. And so eventually when they all went on to Naughty Dog, he asked them to put in a good word for him. It was part of this entire shifting of so many Crystal Dynamics people down to Naughty Dog. Gets hired in 1999, works as an artist on all three Jack and Daxter games, works as an artist on Drake's Fortune as co-art director, and then was elevated to this position of co-game director for Uncharted 2. One thing that really influenced him and what really blew him away was being exposed during the development of the second Jack and Daxter game to the Sony game Eco. Eco is a creation of a designer by the name Fumito Ueda, It's one of the truly revolutionary games of the last 20 years. It was only a cult classic, I think it's fair to say, on the PlayStation 2. 
I think it did sell over a million units, but it's one of these classic game developer games where game developers just completely fell in love with it. The reason for that is it hinged around the central mechanic of these two children wandering around in this deserted castle. You're playing the male child, and the, and you're leading this girl around, and there's a hand-holding mechanic where you basically have to keep her with you holding your hand, and then there are various places where you have to help her overcome obstacles, get over gaps, get up ledges and whatnot. There's this thing where you're hurting her along, but then there's a twist in the middle of it where you're on this bridge and you end up falling, and for the first time, the girl has to save you by grabbing your hand. It's just considered one of these kind of mind-blowing moments, and there's periods of time where you have to leave her alone, and you have to go solve puzzles, and there's these shadows that can capture her, so there's this tension. The thing that's amazing about this game is a story is conveyed entirely in the game world through mechanics. This hand-holding mechanic, this helping mechanic, is kind of the entire way the story is told. There's not dialogue, there's not really cutscenes, there's really not much explanation as to why you're in this castle or what's going on. It's just through this gameplay mechanic of holding hands and escorting, the game creates an emotional response in the player. This is what makes Eco such a revolutionary title, is that it's using gameplay and game mechanics to tell story in a way that is not entirely unprecedented, but in a way that is entirely unusual. At this time, Straley is working on Jack and Daxter. Jack and Daxter games are kind of everything but the kitchen sink. There's all sorts of wacky weapons. There's all of the sarcastic banter and dialogue. It's bigger, bigger, bigger all the time. And, and something about the minimalism of Eco just really resonates with him and really focuses him on this idea of telling stories through gameplay, telling stories through minimal cutscene and just keeping it all in the moment. And to some degree, that's what Uncharted was trying to do, as we said, but it wasn't completely successful in that. And certainly Straley was the co-art director on Uncharted, so he was undoubtedly influencing the design of that one as well. But now that he's co-director with Hennig, he has an opportunity to kind of help put this into practice. And as the whole team, it's not just Hennig and Straley, obviously, there's other designers as well. But as the whole team is getting together and trying to figure this stuff out, they also attend a writing seminar by this very famous writer by the name of Robert McKee, who is very big on story structure, on three-act structure, and on how you develop plot through action, how you structure so that you have an end goal and you have an obstacle to that goal and you have your solution to that goal and how you put all of this together to create a story structure that creates forward momentum, narrative flow, and character development entirely through the way you develop the goals of the characters and the obstacles of the characters. He gives seminars on writing and has for a very, very long time, still does as far as I know, on structure and style. And so Hennig and Straley and uh, Richard Lamarchand and Neil Druckmann, who are kind of the main creatives on Uncharted 2, attend the seminar, and it really opens them up. I mean, they'd already been trying to kind of do this on the first Uncharted, but it really opens them up to the idea that every beat has to have intention. Every time you have an action encounter, there needs to be a clear goal, clear obstacles, clear progression through those obstacles, like really focused in on what makes a compelling story in the moment. 
then tie that in also to the characters and character development and not just make it about plot, 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 but make it about your characters, your characters' relationships and how that interacts with whatever environment you're moving through and whatever obstacle you're overcoming. They got very deliberate with the McKee influence, with the eco influence, of course, all the influences they already had, like Indiana Jones and whatnot. They really narrowed in on this. And what they decided they had to do, and this was very ambitious, is they decided they had to have fully integrated set pieces where they're not dividing gameplay types. It's not we have a shooting section, then a climbing section, a shooting section, the climbing section. We have to integrate all of that, which is way more difficult. It's way more difficult for physics. It's way more difficult for the mocap and the animation. It's way more difficult for the AI, for the computer opponents to react to that. One thing they decided is they had to have true blending of all of their types of gameplay, like shooting and climbing together being a big example of that. More dynamism in their set pieces. The other part of that is that they wanted to have true Hollywood set pieces that really felt like Hollywood set pieces. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. One of the very early things they conceived of is having a train fight, a fight on top of a train, which is a pretty standard action trope. When a video game up to that time has a fight on a moving object like that, it's really not a fight on a moving object. Because when you have an object that's moving, things are bouncing around, things are shifting. Video games are all about, I have my character, I take steady aim on something, I fire at it, I move on to this other thing, I take steady aim and I fire at it. It's not, I take aim at this thing and suddenly there's a jolt on the train and my aim slices to the right because I've jerked in this direction. When you had a fight on a moving object in a video game, you were actually on a stationary object, programmatically speaking, and there was a scrolling scenery that made it look like you were moving. Like if you had a train scene, the train actually was not animated, it was perfectly still, and the scenery was animated and that made it look like your train was moving. But you're actually on a very stable platform where you don't have to worry about sudden shifts, changes, jerks, etc. Because to do all of that is chaos. There's so much animation that you have to do because you have to have animations blend into each other. You have to make sure that the physics is reacting the right way, that everything is shifting properly when something shifts. You have to make sure that the AI also knows what they're doing with this kind of situation. It's something that had never really been done before, but it was important to really recreating the thrill of an action movie in a way that other games, including the first Uncharted, hadn't done before. Truly make it cinematic. So that's what the team did. That's what Hennig and Straley and the Marchand and all of them decided to do, is have this world with these fully immersive, interactive, cinematic set pieces where everything is very character-driven, where everything is very obstacle-driven, where the moment-to-moment gameplay flows into each other very naturally, and where it really feels like you are playing a movie, something that a video game had never really successfully achieved before, even though there had been attempts. This is, of course, why Uncharted 2 Among Thieves is one of the truly monumental video game titles, one of the truly most important video games released in the last couple of decades. came out in 2009. For the first time, it really felt like you were playing in an action movie. I can certainly see that. Skipping around a bit in some gameplay of Uncharted 2, I see exactly what you're talking about here, where you have a case where he's running away from a car or a jeep that's chasing him. He's having to run across the walls. He's tripping and falling, trying to shoot behind him. 
or another time where he's on a part of a building that's flying down a street and he's trying to keep balance on there while all this chaos of stuff is going on and you have that hard dead timer of you're gonna crash into this wall <laughs> exactly there's a big collapsing building set piece you know the train's one of the big sequences and there's a big collapsing building set piece you see in the past if you had a building collapsing in a game that would be a cutscene. That would be something that you just watched happen in between the gameplay that you're doing. At most, you would kind of have a faux collapsing building thing, like where you would reach certain places in the level, there'd be a trigger that caused a pre-setup, you know, like now this piece falls right in front of you or something. Like it gives you the illusion that a building is collapsing around you, but it's not really collapsing around you. Because you're never going to get hit by the debris. You're never going to lose your balance. It's just you get here and there's a little trigger of a little event or to make you feel like you're in a collapsing building or it goes to cutscene and you watch the building collapse. But in Uncharted 2, you are in the middle of that collapsing building and you have to navigate this collapse in real time. And it's not just a, oh, we're trying to trick you into being like, oh, maybe this could get dangerous. It's like, no, this building's falling apart around you and you have to deal with this. In this post-Uncharted world, it's hard to remember that there was a time where you didn't do things like that in a video game. It was all very static. The action you had took place in mostly static environments, and the thrill just came from your interaction with the enemies that you're fighting, like the occasional platform challenge where you have to jump moving platforms or whatever, but not a dynamic, shifting, morphing environment that you're having to move through and deal with in real time. That was just not a thing very often before Uncharted 2. Yeah, I'm looking through the train section right now, too, and I see what you mean, where you got the train swaying a little bit back and forth. I'm sure that screws with not just the player's perception, but probably how they did the physics for it. You got suddenly a helicopter shooting at you. He's hanging off the end of this bridge that's blown up and trying to desperately climb back up while these boxes are falling down around him. Like you said, Indiana Jones, action, adventure, will he make it, will he not? All it takes is one box hitting him and he's gone. Exactly. It felt like being in an action movie in a way that a game really never had before. And of course, universal acclaim, over 3 million copies sold. And uh, believe me, they weren't shut out at the AIAS Awards that year. This is truly one of the landmark games in, in recent video game history. We don't talk about recent video game history that much on this podcast, though this recent video game history is like 15 years old now. But we don't talk about recent times very often, but this is truly one of the monumental games. Where does one go after this? Obviously, they're continuing to make Uncharted games. There have been four of them, plus spinoffs. But they started thinking about what is the next big game going to be as we move on to the PS4. They're always thinking every time there's a, a new system, they're always thinking at Naughty Dog, how can we top what we did last time? Obviously, by making an entirely new franchise, because that's practically what they do with every new generation. Exactly. The next game they would start working on actually was released on the PS3 before it was released on the PS4 by a good year. But still, things were advancing, new things were coming. Always in motion, the future is. So they decided that the next thing they would do is actually go back for a change, and they would reboot Jack and Daxter, because things had gotten to the point where, you know, they could do Jack and Daxter in a more realistic style, and not the cartoony style that they had done back on the PS2. I think after Uncharted 3 is done, two of the main creatives behind that game get together to start thinking about what's next. One of those is Bruce Straley, who we already mentioned. 
The other is an individual by the name of Neil Druckmann. Neil Druckmann is Israeli. He was born in 1978 in a settlement in the West Bank. We don't want to get too heavily involved in Israeli-Palestinian politics here. The settlements are highly controversial Israeli communities that have been established in territories that are nominally held by the Palestinians within the state of Israel. It is a method of extending the Jewish population into areas that have larger Arab-Palestinian populations. We don't want to get into the politics of it, but it's important because violence and political controversy was an ever-present threat or idea within settlement communities. This is something that Neil Druckmann grew up surrounded by. His escape was video games. He got very interested in story-driven computer games. He played Sierra text adventures. He played LucasArts text adventures. He liked Metal Gear, the original Metal Gear on the NES. Story-driven video games were his escape from the sometimes hard reality of growing up in a settlement community in the West Bank. 1989, the family immigrated to America, and he attended middle school and high school in Miami. He wanted to be creative. He liked narrative. He liked writing. He took an interesting path. He decided to study criminology in college because he wanted to become an FBI agent because he figured that as an FBI agent, he would have a wide array of experiences that would make for very interested storytelling. He wanted to essentially apprentice as an FBI agent to become a novelist. There is a precedent of some FBI agents writing books, so it's a thing. Oh, sure. Then, in his junior year, he took a programming class, computer class, and he was enthralled by it. So he decided to switch majors. It took him six years to get through school, because since he had been on this criminology path, he had not taken any of the math and science courses that were prerequisites to getting a computer science degree. So he basically had to start most of his college education over in his third year in order to get this CS degree. So it took him six years to get through college, not because he wasn't accomplished, but because he basically had to start over. His goal was to get into game design because he still had that creative side. So once he graduated, he enrolled at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh to earn his master's degree in what they called entertainment technology. It was one of the very early video game focused degrees that was available. He worked on some projects, he worked on some games there, and one of his professors was able to pay his way to go to the Game Developers Conference in 2003. He attended a presentation by Jason Rubin there, who at the time was still co-president of Naughty Dog, because this was before he left in 2004. Rubin's approach to game development really resonated with Druckmann, and so he kind of hit him up afterwards, you know, GDC's a big networking event, told him who he was, what he was doing asked if they did any internships, and he said, no, you know, we don't do internships, because they didn't at the time. I mean, they they didn't hire interns. It's like, okay. Still, he was really interested in Naughty Dog, still even after that. He actually hit him up, uh, you know, sent him an email, hit him up again, and then they decided that they were going to start offering internships a little while later, but they were not able to connect because Ruben ended up going out of the country. By the time he connected, they gave it to someone else. So he missed out on the internship opportunity at that time, but he continued to develop his skills at Carnegie Mellon. Then he was finally able to take an internship with the company in 2004 in programming. So he worked on the third Jack and Daxter game. He worked on the combat racing spinoff. 
you know, kind of ingratiated himself and got a full-time job with the company as a programmer. But he really wanted to be a designer. I mean, that was kind of the whole goal was to be a game designer. They kind of resisted at first. Evan Wells, who's in charge now, kind of hemmed and hawed about that because he's a programmer. He doesn't have experience. But as Uncharted faced its development problems, which I forgot to mention earlier, were largely caused by the fact that they scrapped all of their tools from the PS2 and created entirely new tools for the PS3, which really delayed the process of creating the game. They gave him a shot. So he actually got to work with Amy Hennig to construct the story of the game. By the second Uncharted game, he was heavily involved on the creative development side of Uncharted 2. Now, he's been paired with Bruce Straley, and they're thinking about ways to reboot the Jack and Daxter series. They're going to be the co-directors of this Jack and Daxter reboot. They started trying to come up with ideas, and they just didn't like it. They really wanted something emotionally resonant. They were both big on that. They were both huge friends of Eco. Druckmann was also a huge fan of Eco. They really loved how that game created emotional resonance between two characters through nothing but gameplay, not through cutscenes, not through contrived stuff, just the gameplay created a connection between these two characters. They just couldn't see that with Jack and Daxter because the Jack and Daxter relationship was not that. Daxter was this very sarcastic character, very much like Mushu in Mulan, providing this commentary on what's going on and bantering back and forth. They didn't feel that emotional resonance there. They didn't want to do that. They got to thinking, does it have to be Jack and Daxter? Evan Wells is like, no, I guess not. (laughs) So they started to think about, well, what can we do instead? And there were a few different influences. Eco was one. They had both just recently read the book City of Thieves by David Benioff, who, of course, went on to be the co-showrunner of Game of Thrones. This book tells the story of two Soviet youths caught up in the siege of Leningrad who are tasked with scrounging food for the city that's under siege and have to go deep behind German lines. It's a coming-of-age story about how they work together and bond on this quest in the middle of, of a war. They were really struck by that. Druckmann was also very taken with the character of John Hartigan in the long-running comic series Sim City, who is this older cop, kind of gruff older cop that ends up looking after this young girl. They kind of mix all of these influences together, and they come up with this idea of these characters, Joel and Ellie. Joel, this gruff, haunted by loss, cold character that survived this apocalypse but lost his daughter and has become very hardened to the world and has done a lot of horrible things to survive and has kind of turned off a lot of his basic humanity. And Ellie, this smart and tenacious girl that nevertheless needs a protector. She needs to be gotten to safety because she could be the last hope for humanity after this apocalypse. They wanted through the gameplay as they're traveling together to show them bonding and show how Joel gradually opens up as they travel together, as they talk to each other, as they banter, as they help each other through the levels. Then, of course, partially based on the Sin City thing as well, where the older cop is sometimes, because of his failing health, needs the help of his younger ward, have the reversal moment, that big twist. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert for a 10-year-old game, so, you know, you've been warned. But where, in the middle, Joel becomes incapacitated and you have to take over as Ellie and save Joel. Then, of course, they wanted to explore 
not just the way two characters bond, but the consequences of bonding and what it means to truly love someone else and what you will do for those you love. Because, of course, then there's the twist ending. Spoiler again. (laughs) But it's a 10-year-old game, so deal with it. Where the mission is complete and you deliver Ellie and they're going to create the cure that's going to save everyone from the zombie apocalypse. Turns out this cure is going to kill Ellie in the process, synthesizing this cure. Joel basically says, screw the human race, this girl is important to me, and saves her. But at the same time, don't want to say dooms humanity, because humanity's story is not over at that moment, but prevents humanity in that moment from getting the cure it needs. The things we do for love, you might say. That's, of course, assuming that they can do it and synthesize whatever they need out of her and figure out what it is. Sure, but the point of the story is not can they do it in the end. The point is this love that Joel has rediscovered that he's capable of for this girl who's become like a a new daughter to him causes him to take the selfish personal choice instead of the choice for the benefit of all of humanity. They've got that, and they're really trying to hone in even more on this uncharted idea of we don't want cutscenes. There are a few cutscenes in The Last of Us, the game that we're obviously talking about. Because I saw this movie recently, the needs of the one outweighed the needs of the many. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Bonus points if you get that one. So they wanted to carry forward this idea of the uncharted games, that everything is in the moment gameplay that we're not doing cutscenes. There are, in the end, a few cutscenes in The Last of Us. They're kind of unavoidable sometimes. They were trying to eliminate cutscenes. They wanted to keep that same sense of presence. They wanted to up the tension, though, because this isn't an action adventure like Uncharted is. From a gameplay perspective, they wanted it to feel like a tense journey. They brought the camera in. They took more of a Resident Evil 4 camera approach. Resident Evil 4 is effective in its gameplay in a lot of ways, but one thing about the -the over-the-shoulder camera angle that it took is not that it just feels good in certain gameplay situations, but it also makes things more claustrophobic because the head and the shoulders of your character are partially blocking the screen. You're up close. You have to turn to see things. You have a more narrow, constrained view, and that can create a greater sense of tension in an action game than a third-person or even a first-person view can because of the limitations that that places on you. They wanted it really close in to emphasize the tension of the scenes. You've got the zombie thing, so there's more of a horror element to it. They enact this gameplay, and as they're testing it, it's not fun. They're finding that there isn't enough tension in it. They make a couple of crucial decisions. Of course, the big showcase enemies of of The Last of Us are the clickers those super mutated zombies that can only track you by sound. And of course, they came up with that as a way of ratcheting up this tension because they're adding these stealth elements in. I mean, he's a big fan of the Metal Gear games too. I mean, it's no surprise they'd want some stealth elements in there where you're having to be very careful about how you move. They were undercutting the tension because like most action games of this type, they had a dodge button. That sucked a lot of the tension out because it made it actually relatively easy to avoid a lot of the enemies, which destroyed the tension. So they did two things. First, they got rid of the dodge button. No rolling around to get away from things like there is in like a Dark Souls game. But the second thing they did, which hadn't been implemented yet, is they made a clicker attacking you, actually hitting you in a one-shot kill and instant death, which they didn't have before. Once they did that, that really ratcheted up the tension because you really had to be extra, extra careful. 
So this combination of this tense movement through levels, the story, the banter between the two characters, of course, it's got all of the traditional stuff that Naughty Dog started with Uncharted, which is gorgeous graphics, gorgeous locations, great motion capture, created this game, The Last of Us, which is truly considered one of the few actually great narrative masterpieces of video games. I mean, we're not here to have that debate on this show. We're just talking about the history of the medium. Your mileage may vary on that, but it's, you know, a true, incredible story-based experience, which is telling its story almost entirely through the gameplay, almost entirely through your experience within the game. Very little cutscene. Mechanics informing emotion. The idea of eco. The idea that Straley and Hennig and others carried over from eco into the Uncharted series. Now weaponized and almost perfected in The Last of Us. It's that trend that really started with Jack and Daxter of wanting to hone in more on narrative, hone in more on world, hone in more on story, hone in more on mechanic-serving story. This is the Naughty Dog experience, and it's the reason why Naughty Dog is considered perhaps the finest developer working in video games today. To really emphasize this point as far as using gameplay to focus on narrative, Really, all you have to do and experience, if you just want a taste of this, is the introductory scene of The Last of Us. Mm -hmm. That is probably this concept brought to a small, concise projection that is just fantastic. You have gameplay going around. You have all the stuff crashing, exploding around you. You've got to react quickly because you're in a survival situation where society is breaking down. You got cars flying at you. You got planes coming in that are crashing. You got fire, brimstone, zombies attacking. It's crazy. In any other game, that would have been a cutscene. Pretty much. That would have been the opening cutscene of the game, and you would just watch it. But you're interacting with that story. You're interacting with that cutscene. You are pressing A. Exactly. And, and even though it's somewhat scripted, it's not the full free form of an Uncharted 2, you're in the moment. It's visceral. It's real. You feel claustrophobic. You feel overwhelmed. You're panicking. You're like, I got to get my daughter out. I got my brother here. I'm trying to survive. He's running off this way. I'm running off that way. My daughter's leg is broken. Yeah, it's, it's truly monumental. And I mean, the game has sold 17 million copies. It was released on PS3 first in 2013, PS4 in 2014. And between the two consoles, 17 million copies. And of course, it just took all the game of the, the year awards and everything from everybody and is, is now a hit TV show. There's a sequel. The episode's running long. I mean, we really need to stop here. <laughs> Australia leaves the company. Druckmann does the sequel. He brings in a female television writer to kind of help with some of the more intimate uh, parts of it, some of the romance by the name of Haley Gross. Again, it's a story about love and about revenge and, and what we do for the people we love. Again, it's a very subversive narrative, and it's a somewhat controversial narrative because it has you do horrible things as the player. It's dark. It's way darker than the first one. There is torture. There is murder. There is lots of killing. And there's ugliness because you're on a revenge trip, and it's really a story about how that affects a person, how feelings of loss and feelings of rage and acts of revenge can shape a person, not always in great ways. It's just such deeper narratives 
than you normally see in video games and enhanced by the gameplay in ways you don't often see. Even when you see deeper narratives in video games, you don't often see the marriage of game world, game mechanics, and story that you see in The Last of Us games or in Naughty Dog games these days in general. And that's what really sets them apart. To bring this all home, it's something that I think that The Last of Us actually does better than any zombie movie I've seen, better than a lot of post-apocalyptic movies that try to express the whole problem of society has collapsed. You're only able to survive with yourself and your small family unit just how brutal survival can be. We think about our lives today where I can go to a grocery store, I have my food met with a little bit of money, I have a comfortable house, I can be warm, I have entertainment, so on and so forth. When our society collapses, you know what I said, when, not if, it's going to be a very chaotic time. It might be an ecological thing, it might be a solar flare, EMP situation, whatever. The thing is, a particular human who's comfortable, they're nice to be around. Everyone's happy with you. When you're down to that point of, I need to survive. I need food. There is only one can of food over here, and it's either for me and my family, or this other person who wants it for their family, but there's one can. You're not going to do the whole Solomon thing of chopping the can in half. Here's a half can for you. Here's a half can for me. You're going to do everything in your power to get that food for your family. And if that involves hurting someone, possibly killing them, in a survival situation, there's a lot of people who would go that far. Especially as it goes on longer and longer and longer, it's just going to get worse. Believe me, if there was a grid-down situation in the United States where it lasted more than a month or two, you're going to see some pretty bad situations start to develop. Mm -hmm. I think that The Last of Us doesn't focus on the zombie, the cordyceps thing, the way it takes everyone over Mm -hmm. as much. And this is especially true in the television series. That's just how society collapsed. We don't really care where the narrative is, where the horror is, where the true challenge is. Humanity's inhumanity to man. And I think The Last of Us Mm -hmm. exemplifies that way better than anything I have hitherto read or watched. I like my post-apocalyptic stuff, as Alex can attest. I've (laughs) read a lot of books. I've watched a lot of movies, some of them very funny. One of my favorite zombie movies is Dawn of the Dead. Mm -hmm. They all try to do that kind of thing where we have this common enemy. We need to survive as a civilization, as humanity, but we can't because we're too much at our throats. There always seemed to be something off with that in every zombie movie I watch. There always seemed to be something a little bit off in a lot of those stories, like, why can't you just work together a little bit here and survive? The Last of Us actually has that happen with a society that does develop. You can have multiple ones of those societies, and their philosophy between those societies can be very, very different and good or bad. Mm -hmm. The example of this, and of course, spoilers. There's a town that develops where they got a power plant going on. They managed to get that working. And society is a little bit like they used to be on the inside. They have a barter system going on, and they have regular patrols going out to keep either raiders or the infected away. That's how you survive in that kind of thing. But there's other groups out there, and most notably in the course of the game, 
David's group where, Mm -hmm. yeah, they're surviving, they're together, but they capture people and anyone they can't use or someone who breaks their rules. Guess what? Your dinner. Yep. I really think if you haven't experienced these games, at the very least, watch a Let's Play of it because Mm -hmm. it is such a wonderful immersive game that has a really, really fantastic story that does apocalyptic to the pinnacle of perfection or as close to it as I have experienced really exemplifies that love of you're going to do whatever you can to survive and protect the people in your group. And if that means that I have to take out this other group, so be it. You know, the whole Citizen Kane of, of video games metaphor is belabored at this point. It's it's too belabored to have any meaning anymore, quite frankly. The basic premise of that, the idea that will there be a video game or has there been a video game that breaks from previous media and tells a story in a way that could only be told using the tools of that medium, like tells a great effective emotional story using tools unique to the video game medium. And the idea of, is that something that can happen? Is that something that has happened? Can it happen? Even if it's a little trite to talk about it anymore, because it's been too belabored an analogy, something like the later Uncharted games or The Last of Us, that's the closest I think we've come so far of reaching that potential, of actually starting to get to the point where video games can tell a meaningful story within the confines of video game mechanics and video game structure and video game methods, not through just mixing in some gameplay with also having some cutscenes that you watch or read, which doesn't move it that far away from just being a book or a movie. This is the future of video games as an art form. Not that all games will be like this. There's room for all kinds. There can still be mindless action games. There can still be sports games. There will always be lots of types of games. But if we're talking about the video game as a unique storytelling medium, just that specific area, Naughty Dog are definitely the ones that are blazing the trail. This episode has gone on way too long. We're actually surprised it had decided to become a three-parter. Not enough. That's the problem. There was no good breaking point uh, in the Naughty Dog story to break it into thirds. As always, what shall we discuss in our next episode where I have to come up with more puns? Usually bad ones. Well, I thought we'd talk about two topics that we've never talked about before, Jeffrey. Atari and the Great Video Game Crash. I believe we did a three-parter on that. We did Aftermath episodes. We've done before math episodes. We even showed how it's not E.T.'s fault with the holistic view of E.T. There's many people who have discussed it. There are people who link to those episodes when they discuss the video game crash because, you know, it has information in it. Why do we have to go back there? It's scary. There was a crash. Things fell down. I'm still trying to dodge, and this is real life here. <laughs> because I just keep finding more information, Jeffrey. Our crash episodes are ancient at this point in the history of the podcast, and our Atari episodes are almost as ancient. So a lot of that material is out of date, needs to be updated. We could do remastered episodes where we literally do the exact same topic all over again and pretend the old episode didn't exist, but that isn't really very appealing to me. There are so many topics in video game history that we don't want to just completely repeat ourselves. But sometimes it's good to go back to topics we've covered before and approach them from a slightly different direction to kind of illustrate some of the new things that have been discovered since. What I really want to do is do an episode focused on Atari from 
1982 to 1984, specific to the factors that caused the company to disintegrate during the course of the video game crash. We've talked about Atari broadly. We've done their history. We've also talked about the crash broadly and how that affected the entire video game industry. But this is going to be a deep dive into the specific Atari problems that caused them to disintegrate. Because as as we'll see, just the fact that the industry had a crisis in 1982 did not inevitably mean that the entire thing had to fall apart the next year or that Atari had to fall apart the next year. But because of a specific series of very bad decisions in the aftermath of that calamity... Atari did completely disintegrate, and so doing a more of a deep dive on that specifically, which is not a specific topic we've discussed before, and will have plenty of new material in it that I did not have access to when we first looked at the crash and first looked at Atari in those older sequences. Okay, I guess we're going to have to go back to the crash and... Learn how it might have actually been E.T.'s fault. Who knows? (laughs) Next time on They Create World. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplay Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplay mode. Used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roll of Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Sorry, this one's late. Took way longer to edit than I thought. Edit, 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 edit. So much edit, edit. Dear God, the edits. (laughs) 